One of the biggest differences I find now between first-time founders and second-time founders is that distribution. So, you know, first-time founders, they might focus on, you know, just building the product, building the MVP. But the second-time founders, you know, they're really forward-thinking and really focus on the distribution. Welcome to Yaro's podcast, where you'll discover the stories behind world-class performers, business builders, and enlightened leaders. Hey, this is Yarrow, and thanks for downloading my podcast today. You're about to hear from Brendan Hill, who is an entrepreneur and angel investor from Australia. In this interview, Brendan shares his experience first as an entrepreneur starting an e-commerce website all about football, soccer, memorabilia, in particular uh, shirts signed by players from Europe, which he then brought back to Australia and sold. It's a good story. It's a classic e-commerce story, which eventually led to him selling the business, which was how he funded his now current pastime angel investing. So he used the money from selling his business to switch basically to become an investor and has now done over 20 investments, both through syndicates. Uh, He's leading his own syndicate, which is brand new. So he talks about what it's like to be a syndicate lead on AngelList. You may have heard of that website for angel investing, but also some of the direct investments he's done in various different startups, including one called Tilletier, which is a AI-powered product identification scanning tool, which helps identify things like Fruit, which doesn't have a barcode and is going really, really well down in Australia and expanding around the world. He's an investor in that. He syndicated that deal to AngelList, and that's actually where I got involved. I dropped a little bit of money as a syndicate member into that deal as well. So you hear us talk about that. So if you're interested in entrepreneurship in terms of e-commerce and selling an e-commerce business, but more importantly, angel investing, syndicates, and everything to do with that side of entrepreneurship, you'll enjoy this podcast. So here we go. Here's Brendan Hill. Hi, this is Yarrow. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like to welcome Brendan Hill to the podcast. Brendan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Yara. Looking forward to it. So Brendan uh, and I recently connected through a Slack group, actually. Jason Karkanis, who is an angel investor, and he has a huge startup Slack group for his This Week in Startups podcast. Uh, We'll have to include that with the show notes as well. But basically, Brendan and I are both members there. It's free. And I think, I don't know, did we connect about talking about Palantir? Was that the first point of contact? I believe so, Yara. Yeah, I mean... I invested in some Palantir secondary stock a couple of years ago. And yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, Jason Calacanis's uh, Slack community is a fantastic place to meet like-minded entrepreneurs and investors. So I think I just uh, reached out to you. I saw one of your posts saying that you also had some Palantir secondary stock and we took it from there. Yeah, that's awesome. Now that led to me learning a bit more about you. And in fact, you got me in as an angel investor in your uh, angel, what is it? Till it I'm, I don't pronounce this right. Tilliter is the name of the company that you uh, recently did at a seed round you were part of. But I'd love to talk about all that. But first, we should probably introduce you a bit more so the audience knows why we're talking to you. I wanted to get Brendan on because he has currently doing a lot of angel investing, which is something I'm very interested in and have been doing myself for a few years now. But also the background story of Brendan, I believe there's a pretty awesome e-commerce story to share here. So I want to kind of look at both worlds. Um, but Brendan, maybe you want to give us a highlight reel. Just what are your claims to fame? Yeah, definitely. Yara, thanks for the opportunity again. So, I mean, I've had an interesting journey over the last 15 years. So I guess I've sort of come full circle now. So I was a founder myself of a business. And now, as Yara mentioned, you know, I love to angel invest in early stage startups. So, I mean, I started, you know, tinkering, building e-commerce websites during high school and university. I mean, back in those days, you know, there was, there was no Shopify, there was no WooCommerce. It, it was a lot harder. But, you know, I found some profitable niches, you know, in those days, there was a lot of fantastic resources. You know, I was an early listener of uh, Yaro's blog, of your blog, you know, people like Neil Patel as well. You know, there was a lot of great resources where you could learn online marketing and create a profitable business. So I found a profitable niche in the area of sports memorabilia. So I was a big football or soccer fan, the world game. And I had a big collection myself of, you know, different signed jerseys. You know, I was a big Tottenham Hotspur fan and still am 
in the Premier League. Uh, so what I did, I you know flew over to the UK. I went to Spain. I went to Italy. I met all the different suppliers that you know obtained these autographed jerseys. And then after I had built that uh, supply chain, you know, he came back to Australia and basically had the uh, the signed jerseys delivered to myself here in Sydney. You know, I used a lot of the you know marketing knowledge that I'd acquired. You know, created a real premium product. It was, it was more like an experience as well. So I mean, if you're buying a signed jersey, you know, you're buying memories. You're buying memories of your favorite football teams, maybe your favorite match. Uh, your team may have won a trophy and, you know, you want to remember that. So how do you do that? You buy a signed jersey. So mm. you know, really creating an, an experience, built a community, you know, something that, you know, I, I learned from you in the early days as well, the power of community. And, you know, ran this business as very profitable, you know, ran it for five or six years, you know, could have been comfortable and, you know, I love football, I loved traveling, you know, it's a pretty good gig, you know, going over, watching the Premier League multiple times and uh, different football leagues around the world. But I'd always been interested in startups, always been interested, you know, in expanding my entrepreneurial journey as well. So, you know, the time came, I started to seek a buyer for the business. And, you know, I actually found someone right here in Australia, you know, I'd been talking to people in the US and Singapore it worked out perfectly, uh, smooth transition. I had to stay on for about six months uh, to handle the transition and you know, hand over the technology that we'd built. And yeah, after I exited the business, I was in a great position to use those acquisition funds to you know start investing in these early stage technology companies that you know these guys are trying to change the world. It's a super exciting space to be in as well. You know, working with founders. And it's kind of like getting in, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Back to the Future, but getting in Doc Emmett's, uh, getting in the DeLorean, you know, you're going five to 10 years into the future. You know, these founders have the vision of, you know, they're building the world that they want to see. And, you know, it's super stimulating. I get a surface area education in a lot of different areas, you know, like AI, machine learning, you know, I'm learning a bit about space as well, which is super interesting. So, you know, to work with different people each day. Each day is super interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to build out the Australian investor ecosystem as well. Mm. Oh, I want to unpack a few things here. Let's start with the e-commerce business and we can switch to angel investing mode after that. I know nothing about the memorabilia space besides uh, the fact that it exists. I'm curious, even when you said you went over to Europe, is that like was the plan, you know, you hope to pick up something at X dollars and then you believe that you could sell it for more simply because you'll reach a different audience in Australia, like right at the early stages of that company? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, in the early days, you know, I didn't really drill down on my niche uh, very early. You know, I was offering all di different types of sports. So, you know, I had cricket, I had rugby union, I had the local Australian sports as well. But, you know, Australian customers had access to all these sports. You know, you can go down to your local club. You can go down after the game and get the autographs. So what I was selling was, uh, you know, something that money can't buy in Australia. European signed jerseys, footballs and football boots. So, you know, it's hard for Australians to fly over to Europe. It's a, a very expensive and long trip. And, you know, what I found was, you know, people are willing to pay, you know, multiples on top of the cost price to, you know, acquire their, their hero's jersey as well. And, you know, the Premier League was really taking off in Australia in the mid-2000s. You know, we had access through, you know, different cable providers to live games. You know, the profile of all the Europeans was really growing exponentially. So it was a great combination of uh, factors that really created this, this profitable business. Did you just know what was a good deal? Like I can imagine myself, I'm landing in, in England and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go to the local memorabilia store. I'm going to see a jersey for sale for a football club. And then, you know, it's listed at whatever, 100 pounds. I know that I can get 300 Aussie dollars when I go home. It, it, like, do you, is that 
summarizes your kind of basic plan. Uh, you must have some insight, I'm guessing, just because of your knowledge of football that you can spot a good deal. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, being a, an avid football fan and follower as well, you know, I just kept up with the most popular players. I guess I had free market research talking to all my football friends as well to see who the, you know, what the most popular products would be. But I guess, you know, this was, I started this business in a time, you know, before the, the lean startup and all the lean methodology was really published. But, you know, I used some of those methodologies unknowingly at the time. You know, I, I had kind of, I guess you could call the minimum viable product. You know, I set up an eBay store first, for example. You know, I gauged the, the demand for different products, met different suppliers. And then when I really wanted to scale the business, that's when I had to, you know, take that, that trip over to Europe and, you know, discuss the deals with the different suppliers in the different countries. And, you know, once I had, you know, I was pretty lucky. I found some fantastic suppliers uh, pretty early on. But I mean, I mean, one of the reasons that I sold the business as well is that, you know, it, it's not a truly scalable business. You know, there's a finite amount of products. You know, the players only sign a certain amount of jerseys. Liverpool, for example, won the Champions League in 2005. After that team, you know, for example, signs 100 jerseys, there's no more left. So, you know, it's very manual in a way. You have to upload, keep uploading, you know, different products to your e-commerce sites. So, I mean, scalability was one of the, definitely one of the important things that I learned running that business. And, you know, that's one of the things that I look for now in the startups that I invest in. Mm. You jumped ahead to the next question. I was going to ask you about scaling. I can imagine, I had no idea, 100 signatures only. That's serious demand, though, I could imagine. That's a, you know, very little supply. So everyone's going to want one. Can you just maybe break down a little bit? Because you said you had, you know, these connections in, in Europe. Now that's going to send you a amount of product. I'm getting the picture. It's not a lot. So you can't scale too much, but you can certainly get larger than just an eBay store where maybe you're selling one item a week or something like that. How did it scale? Like, Did you go from one item a week to 10 items a week to 100 items a week? And is it just you sitting there you know, coordinating a supplier, sending a jersey direct to a customer, or are they sending you a box full of jerseys? It's landing in your, your Sydney garage and then you're packaging up each individual product as it sells and sending it down, you know, to the post office. Is that kind of the visual we've got of the early days of, of your company? That's pretty much spot on, Yaro. And, you know, it was very manual in the early days. You know, I did have different freelancers and employees at different times when, you know, different peaks. You know, World Cup, for example, is obviously a very busy time, but that's only once every four years. So you really have to double down and make those, you know, golden windows really worth it in the end. I learned many lessons as well. You know, one of the biggest differences I find now between first-time founders and second-time founders is that distribution. So, you know, first-time founders, they might focus on, you know, just building the product, building the MVP. But the second-time founders, you know, they're really forward-thinking and really focus on the distribution. So some other sort of distribution hacks that I had, you know, I sold into physical stores here in Australia as well. You know, we had different affiliates through affiliate marketing. You know, we had different online stores on you know, eBay and Gumtree. But I mean, the main traffic was coming through the website. You know, we had a pretty extensive content marketing strategy. You know, learned that from people like yourself and Neil Patel as well. So, you know, our number one... Our number one acquisition channel was, you know, organic search, which at the end of the day, uh, in my experience, is definitely the most uh, profitable for that long-term ROI horizon. So someone would literally type in footballer name, sign jersey, and your site would show up? Yeah, we, we, you know, we had a backlink strategy. We were one of the first to really utilize uh, product videos as well. So we had a custom product video, we had a version hosted on YouTube, we had a a version hosted on Wistia that was embedded on our site that we found the SEO was a bit stronger using that method as well. We eventually migrated to WooCommerce for our e-commerce store with a lot of customization. And yeah, I mean, it was just a fantastic platform for ranking really high organically in Google. So take us forward with that business. Obviously, you did eventually sell. At what point during this process were you 
making that choice. And then did you set up the business or like make some changes so it was uh, more attractive to a buyer? Yeah, so I read a, I read actually read a book and the name's escaping me at the moment. I think it may be called Built to Sell. Mm. And it, it's only a short book. It's only about four hours on Audible. But that's a fantastic book to, you know, help you get your business ready for a sale. It's about a logo design company, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, right. So he, he tells the yeah, he tells the story uh, through a, a parable of sorts. It's a bit of a, a narrative. And, you know, it's, it's so many fantastic insights that I got through that story. And, you know, one of the main things was, you know, are you your business? You know, no one's going to buy your business if it can't run without. And, you know, I have a lot of friends in Australia that, you know, run their own marketing agencies. And it's a big problem that they have as well. You know, they are their business. I think mm-hmm. Neil Patel wrote an article recently where he said, you know, one of his biggest mistakes was calling his marketing agency, you know, Neil Patel Marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be hard to sell. You know, he's the face of it. So there's definitely some disadvantages in that way. But, I mean, another great way, another, I guess, tactic that I used when I, you know, tried to get my business acquired and eventually did was, you know, actually implementing all of the digital marketing, you know, strategies and techniques to the sale of my business. So, you know, high converting copywriting, you know, using fantastic images, using video as well. So, I mean, I can't stress how important video has been in my entrepreneurial journey as well. So at the point you're thinking about selling, did you have a price in mind? And I'm totally up to you how much numbers you want to share, but I'd love to know where you were with, you know, the the size of the company at, at that point, what you expected to hopefully get in terms of a sale price. Um, I've sold a few website businesses myself, and I know it's kind of dependent on who you're selling to. But you know, you sold it in Australia, so you must have found a local buyer. Can you take us through that that sales process? Yeah, definitely. So you know, I got the business ready to sell. It took me probably about, about three to six months. You know, had all the technology up to date, and going back to the built to sell book, you know, they have different formulas in there about you know, how much your business valuation is. So from memory, I think e-commerce business, it's about a two to three X multiple of your last year's net revenue. So, I mean, we were a very profitable company at the time, you know, we were set up well for a sale. We were in the sort of mid six figure range and we had a a lot of people want to, you know, as you know, start their own online business. And, you know, sometimes a good head start is to acquire an already profitable business. Like we had a large email database, we had a big community. And so the the company that actually ended up purchasing us was a company, a marketing company, and they actually brought Uber into Australia oh, wow. back in 2000, yeah, back in 2015, 2016. So the three founders, you know, they were football fans as well, which uh, definitely helped. But they're also, you know, interested in the technology that we had built as well, you know, the sort of platform. And, you know, they wanted to bring their sort of business online uh, more as well. So, you know, there's lots of synergies between, between us. And, you know, I'm just so thankful that, you know, I got to sell to a local company that made the whole you know, the legals and the accounting a lot cheaper. You know, we had a lot of stock on hand as well. So, you know, I just drove that from Sydney to Brisbane. Oh, really? And you know, it was a lot, yeah, a, a lot easier than, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, some potential buyers in, you know, the US, uh, Singapore and a few other places as well. So to find someone in Australia, uh, it was a true blessing. Mm. Is it still up and running? It is still up and running. The group that bought it from me actually flipped it and sold it a couple of years later oh. to someone I was actually talking to the first time as well. So unfortunately for that buyer, they they paid uh, even more than I sold it for. But yeah, from what I know, it is still going well. And you know, the thing about football is it's always going to be popular. The product is always going to be in demand. And because we had you know the strong SEO. We have a strong supply chain, a strong customer base. It's definitely a fantastic foundation 
for someone to bring new ideas to and continue to grow. What's the domain name? Uh, I haven't asked you that, friends, and everyone wants yeah. to check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the domain name is premiersportsmemorabilia.com. Okay, opening it up now so I can check it out. So you make the sale. Now, I'm guessing if, if you're talking about a two to three multiple and you said mid six figures, you're making, a, I'd say, a good chunk of money. It's not retire forever money, but it's going to keep you going for a long time if you don't do anything else. No matter what, though, you, you certainly faced a, a moment in your life where you had options. So mm-hmm. take me through your decision-making process for the what's next once the sale was completely finished and you were a free man from that business. Yeah, so I mean, once I had the money, you know, I had a lot of options... Yarrow, it's not going to keep me going for too long with the house prizes in Sydney. Let me tell <laughs> true. you. Uh, That's true. That's true. It's probably like one house at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Very pricey here in Sydney, Australia. Uh, but, you know, I had options and, you know, I really sort of reached out to my mentors as well. And I really wanted to, I guess, highlight the importance of having mentors in, you know, each area of your life as well. So, you know, I asked all the people that I respect the most and, I basically went away for about six to 12 months just to study the areas that I was passionate about. You know, I studied entrepreneurship, you know, I reflected on the lessons that I learned from, you know, running an online business for seven years. And, you know, what I came away with is, you know, I wanted to work with, you know, passionate founders that are changing the world. And, you know, one way to do this is to start another business. And I mean, I could have done that, learned a lot of fantastic lessons and, you know, second time founders. That, that's why I like backing second time founders as an investor now, because, mm. you know, they don't make those same mistakes that they make the first time. So, I mean, I went and you know, I was actually inspired by Tim Ferriss as well. So he has a case study that he talks about a lot. Uh, he calls it his two year investing MBA. So he was looking at doing an MBA at Stanford. And instead of that, he decided to start angel investing and learning from the actual founders. So I, and I mean, he did that after selling his e-commerce uh, startup as well. So <laughs> a lot of parallels here. <laughs> yeah, a lot of parallels. Probably a similar so, age too, I think at the time I would say. Yeah, yeah. So early 30s. So, you know, definitely inspired by that story. So, you know, I had a lot of friends in the startup scene in Australia. And, you know, I'd been been interested in the in the startup space in Australia since, you know, 2012 and 2013. And in the last seven years, you know, it's gone through a, a seismic shift as well. So I remember going to one of my first entrepreneurial talks and it was actually Melanie Perkins, the Canva co-founder. Nice. And they had just launched, you know, they had spent one year, I believe it was, you know, building out their products. So another lesson as well, you know, there's no one way to build a successful startup. So this was at the time when the lean startup had just come out, you know, everyone was, you know, failing fast and, you know, getting the product out there, rapid iteration on the product from customer feedback. But, you know, Canva sort of went a different route, you know, they went behind closed doors. They built out their, their technology for a whole year. Uh, you know, they had investors uh, sort of pestering them to, you know, at least release, release something. something. Yeah, yeah <laughs> get something out into the market. But, you know, they, they kind of viewed it as they had one chance to get it right. They wanted to make their product beautiful. You know, they had a big mission as well, you know, democratizing mm. design. And, you know, we all know how that turned out. You know, now they're valued at $6.2 billion. And, you know, they've done a lot for the the Australian startup ecosystem as well. You know, it's funny you mentioned that time in Canva's life because I was in Sydney, I think it would have been maybe six years ago, seven years ago. And I remember it wasn't Melanie herself, but it was someone, because it was a small team back then, it was someone there invited me to, not sure it was a tour of the office. I think it was simply because, you know, I have a blog and they were looking to do outreach and start getting some uh, links back and some exposure for what they were doing. So maybe they were hoping I would review their their platform. I remember thinking now in the in the history, if I had gone and I don't know if there was like a, a seed round coming up or something like that, but the opportunity to invest. I Unfortunately, not only did I not even go and visit them, I left Australia completely, <laughs> literally months later. So missed that boat. But I remember when Canva started succeeding, 
for me, it was like, and this is, I think, a, a great segue into your own investment philosophy. If I had gone into Canva's offices at the time, I'm pretty sure, you know, maybe I'll be wrong because the people might have impressed me, but I'm pretty sure just looking at the idea alone, I would have never foreseen it becoming as successful as it has because it was essentially just another image editing tool of which there were already many, nothing to show it would take off the way it has. Did you have any kind of like when you first heard about Canva and even with your investment philosophy now, I like this, this idea of investing in second time founders. That's, that's smart. But in terms of product and things like that, do you have any strategies? Yeah, definitely. And I, I can go back to the Canva example as well. So what I like to look for in the founders that I invest in, you know, it's that sense of the inevitability of success. And, you know, that, that's what Melanie had when I heard her talk in you know, 2013. You know, they had a small team, as you mentioned, you know, based in Surrey Hills. The first 40 or 50 pitches that she gave, uh, you know, all the investors said no. But, you know, she was talking on stage and, you know, talking about getting to, you know, I'm going to roll out this feature when we get to 1 million users, we're going to democratize design, you know, we're going to take on Adobe, Microsoft, all these massive players. And this is a small startup in Sydney. So, you know, she's talking with that much gravitas that, you know, you just want to get involved. And, you know, this happened with one of my recent investments as well. A gentleman by the name of Tarek, and he's started a startup called Check com.au that's uh, spelled C-H-E-Q. And he's disrupting the same-day pay lending space. Mm-hmm. So he's offering 5% a flat fee, no admin fees, no late fees. And, you know, he's really helping people you know, get on top of financial emergencies. So, you know, I met him in a first meeting. It was in a co-working space in Sydney. You know, he came up with his tracksuit pants on, you know, probably... You don't usually get that when you're meeting an investor that wants to invest in your company. But, you know, he's... Confidence or lazy. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, I mean, similar to Melanie as well. You know, so much confidence. You know, he's talking about, you know, rolling out feature, you know, X, Y, and Z when we get to 250,000 users. And it's just him and his co-founder coding this in a co-working space in Sydney. Wow. But, you know... Another thing I look for is entrepreneurs that say, uh, that do what they say they're going to do. And Tarek, you know, over the last year has done this as well. You know, now he's got over 10,000 users on his platform. You know, he's built a community. They're super sticky as well. They, they keep coming back. You know, he's changing consumer behavior and he's really, you know, helping people put food on the table. So he's changed. It's kind of like after pay as well. It's, it's a really successful startup that we have in Sydney. So they're a buy now, pay later model. And with Tarek, with Czech, it's like a, it's a before pay, as sometimes he calls it. So, mm. you know, unlocking access to the wages you've already earned, you might get paid once a month. You know, if you have some kind of emergency, if your car breaks down, now you can access your paycheck in advance and only pay that 5% fee. Sounds like an interesting investment. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about it, but I'd love to also take a step back maybe to the start of this investment journey on your end. Because obviously, you know, once you write some checks, you speak to founders, it becomes something you're more comfortable with. But take us to that first experience, I guess, where you were, I'm guessing you were back from that education time and you want, you decided you're going to do an investment MBA like Tim Ferriss did. I'm assuming your strategy was Australia because you, you do keep talking about the Australian scene and you want to be there and supporting Australian companies. You go and see Melanie talk. Was that part of a strategy of establishing deal flow just simply by attending events? Like what was your plan at that point? Yeah, that's 100% right, Yaros. So, you know, we call it deal flow in the investment world. So you always need to be building out the deal flow. And, you know, deal flow can come from a variety of places. It can come from, you know, events like that. You know, in COVID times, uh, you know, our deal flow is getting a lot more global as well. You know, TechCrunch Disrupt, for example, is happening right now in September. You know, I'm meeting a lot of fantastic people virtually on their platform. You know, it's about meeting founders as well, you know, participating in online groups. It's really getting your name out there as well. So, I mean, actually, one of the quotes that Tarek from Czech says, you know, it's not about 
you know, who you know, it's about who knows you. So, you know, there's a lot of personal branding you can do to get your name out there as well. But, you know, one of the best things is having positive word of mouth with founders. So I always try and help my different founders uh, in my portfolio companies as much as I can, you know, with my marketing background, with the large network that I've built in Australia, I, I kind of almost try and be like a, a super router of sorts. So connect them with my network. And, you know, one of the problems that we have in Australia compared to the United States is that that really early stage capital problem. So it's hard for these fast growing Australian companies to get the capital that they need to really kickstart their companies. And it's based around a variety of reasons. We're a lot more risk averse in Australia than our US counterparts. Some cultural cultural sort of reasons for that. And you know, we haven't had the Googles, the Facebooks, the Ubers. You know, there's not really that that history of big startup and exiting success like they do in the US. But you know, companies like Canva and Atlassian are definitely changing that as well. But you know, what I'm trying to do now, and I'm actually working with the University of New South Wales, the UNSW Founders Program, we're actually running a course and we're educating, you know, everyday investors on how to become angel investors. Uh, so last year we ran a three-day course. We had 17 different angel investors come in and, you know, share their experiences. And, you know, our goal is to get you know, more people in that early stage funding ecosystem to help out these founders that, you know, they may need, you know, $250,000. It could be the next Canva, you know, to get their product off the ground. Because back in 2013, 2012, when Canva was starting out, you know, they, Melanie Perkins had to fly over to San Francisco. Uh, she stayed on her, her brother's couch and, you know, she was pitching uh, angel investors over in the US. And I've had a similar experience recently. Uh, it helped to start up, join some syndicates and syndicate an allocation of their Series A. And we did one syndicate in Australia and we did the other syndicate in the US. And the questions from the investors from the Australian side, you know, it was all about money, you know, how much runway do you have? What's your burn rate? What's your revenue? And then on the US side, there was literally not one question about any monetary concerns. You know, the US questions were all about, you know, how big can your product get? What's your team like? And, you know, how fast can you grow? So you can still see in 2020 the mindset between the two countries and their investment philosophies are definitely still a lot different. But, you know, that will definitely change over time and especially coming out of COVID as well. You know, we need to back these new companies because they're going to be the people that, you know, create jobs and help us get out of this uh, recession that we're currently in. You, ha you haven't dropped your, your first investment story yet, Brendan. What was it? Well, the first investment story uh, is actually... Uh, through an old friend. So it's definitely uh, important to build out that network and keep in contact and continue to drop value to as many people as you can. So this was a superannuation company. So it's a, like a 401k in the US and they were called Grow Super. So they were, they were helping millennials get on top of their retirement savings and plans. And they did this through an app interface. Uh, they combined, if you had multiple super funds, you know, they combined that. They made topping up your super fund. Uh, they sort of gamified that and made that easy as well. And, you know, these guys are uh, super successful, which was uh, I was pretty thankful for my first investment because, you know, I didn't really have enough education as I probably should have. And that's a common mistake when you start angel investing, you know, you're so excited, you, know, you just want to make that, that first investment. And, you know, I would definitely recommend to do, you know, a lot of reading. Jason Calacanis has a fantastic book called Angel. And he's one of the most successful angel investors of all time. He was one of the first money in Uber. He had $25,000 check in Uber and he had a 4,000% uh, return, which is not bad. But, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that you need to look out for in your first investment. You know, are you investing too much? That's actually a question I, I wanted to ask you about money. Sorry to interrupt because I, I mm. if we can go back to Tim Ferriss's 
story with his first angel investments, I think he had like planned to invest something like a hundred or maybe two hundred thousand dollars. And he basically blew fifty thousand dollars on a couple of investments that went nowhere straight away, like right out of the gate. It sounds like your early stage. Were you thinking, yeah, I'll drop twenty five thousand, fifty thousand on X number of companies? Like, what was what's your monetary plan? Like, how much do you decide to put into a company? Yeah, so that is correct with the Tim Ferriss example. He did lose fifty thousand, uh, you know, twenty five percent of his allocated capital on his first investment. Uh, so, I mean, that's why people like Jason Calacanis, you know, they recommend if you are, for example, investing 200000 you know, have 20 equal bets of 10000 Because then you also need to keep in mind, you need to save some money for those follow-on rounds as well. So you need to keep backing your winners that are actually getting product market fit. They're getting customers, they're scaling their companies because, you know, you're going to get an outsized return from, you know, one or two of your winners of your whole portfolio. So, you know, I was thinking around the same lines and it comes to an interesting point as well, Yarrow, around, you know, direct investing and investing in a syndicate. Let's explain what that difference is for those who don't know. Yeah. So if you invest directly with a company, they're usually going to ask for a minimum of twenty-five dollars to $50,000. Whereas a syndicate, on the other hand, that's where you gather, you know, it could be a large bunch of angel investors and they go into a special fund and they have one lead of the syndicate. And it's a fantastic way to democratize angel investing at low amounts. So you can, on AngelList, for example, where I have a syndicate as well, you can invest as little as $1,000 into a deal. So you might have you know, 100 different people that invest $1,000 each, for example, and that syndicate will raise $100,000. The only downside of the syndicate approach is that you have to pay the syndicate lead a 20% carry, and that stands for carried interest. And you're basically paying that 20% carry you know, to get access to the deal because these are usually really hard deals to get access to. You know, The founders don't want to talk to 100 individual people as well. And you know, the, the syndicate lead is also doing the due diligence as well. So, I mean, syndicates are a great way to get into, you know, deals all around the world. You know, I've invested in deals from Colombia, Mexico, the US. And, you know, even if I was in the United States and I wanted to invest in a startup, you know, they'd ask for 100,000 US minimum and, you know, the legal setup and structure would be very costly for me being an Australian citizen as well. So that's why I'm a big fan of the syndicate approach. I'd love to actually pick your brain about the behind the scenes of your own syndicate. Obviously, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming your story would have gone where you did a few direct investments, like you said, 25000 to 50000 into companies in Australia. But at some point you said, now I want to lead at my own syndicate. So I'm going to go to angelist.co, so the most popular kind of global platform for angel investing, but more importantly, for leading a syndicate. Can you tell me a little bit about what happens behind the scenes? And let's let's make it practical because I'm an angel in your syndicate now. I was one of X number of people who put a couple of thousand dollars into Tilletier. Maybe you can explain how that deal came to be and how it all works behind the scenes. As much as you can reveal, of course. I know some of it's uh, you know, can't be revealed to the public. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, AngelList is a fantastic platform. It was founded by Naval Ravikant, and I definitely recommend checking out some of his writings and podcasts as well. Definitely one of the most knowledgeable people I've come across. And it's a fantastic way to get into angel investing, as you said, Yaron. So, syndicate leads, you know, they bring startup deals. So, startups might be raising a seed round, a series A round. And the syndicate lead secures an allocation in these rounds. And these are usually startups that they're really close to, that they have a relationship with, and they have to have previously invested in the company as well. So then you write the deal note, you get the deal on AngelList. And AngelList has, you know, it's the biggest community of angel investors in the world. So they have, you know, fantastic reach. And they advertise the deal on their platform and then you can invite uh, different investors as well. And something that's popular on AngelList at the moment is it's called co-syndication. Uh, so for myself, I did my first syndicate 
and Yaro, thank, thank you for backing in. It's one of the reasons we connected. And I did that about uh, two months ago. And because I'm a new syndicate on the platform, I actually co-syndicated the deal with a more established AngelList syndicate lead. And I mean, it's similar to you know how you grow a podcast and a YouTube channel as well. You collaborate with more established people in the base, and then you show them that uh, you also can provide good value, and then you acquire their, their members as well. Uh, so we had a small allocation of to leaders series A, and you know a bit of backstory on on Tilita. Uh, they're the world's most flexible identification system for products without barcodes. So it's a fantastic team that I met in Sydney and, you know, three of the best founders that, that I've met for sure. And they've created a AI algorithm that can identify any product without a barcode. So the first vertical that they went after with this technology was fresh fruit and produce. So they're actually in Australia's largest supermarket chain, Woolworths, at the moment. They have an autonomous checkout. So you, know, you can put your different variety of red apple under their uh, scanner and it uses computer vision and AI uh, to automatically identify what type of apple it is, what weight, and then you can actually get your mobile phone out, scan the barcode, and you can walk right out of the store. So you have your credit card preloaded on the app and this is a fantastic uh, contactless shopping method during COVID. And it's uh, yeah, proving really successful at the moment. So is this a case where you get to know the founders, for example, Tilatir in this case, just through your usual connecting with people? And then, you know, you, you talk to them, you find out they're doing a raise, in this case, a Series A. And then you just say, hey, can I get a proportion allocation of that? And I'm going to syndicate it to my my followers and, and raise whatever I can raise. Is, is that kind of how it works, roughly speaking? Yeah, I mean, roughly speaking, that's accurate. I mean, you never want to, I guess, approach a startup and try and get an allocation, you know, if you if you can't feel that allocation as well. Mm. Because, you know, with a startup, they, they need to move fast. You know, they're always trying to extend their runway as well and grow as fast as possible. So you really need to commit to a number that you think you can achieve. And... I think the thing about angel investing and after you've been doing it for a couple of years, you know, you really get to uh, read people, you know, you, as people, as founders, like, I mean, that's one of the skills of angel investing. You need to be able to tell what type of people are going to be successful in building the next great company. Because in the early days, there's not that much information there. It's not like investing in public stock market. You know, we can't look through their revenue reports. We can't look through the historical reports. You know, there's a lot more things that are wrong uh, than are right. So you really need to focus on the things that are right. And you know, you need to ask yourself, you know, if these couple of things do go right, you know, how big can this idea get? And that's definitely something with Tilator as well. You know, they've, you know, they're in supermarkets, which are traditionally very hard to get into. You know, they only have innovation cycles every sort of five to seven years. So for Tilata to have 16 customers around the world, some of the biggest supermarkets like Woolworths, Lidl, Netto in Europe, you know, these guys have over 4,000 stores. To be able to penetrate that, you know that the, the product is, uh, you know, definitely one of a kind. And, you know, the technology is fantastic. So, you know, I got to know the founders over about a year and, I got to, you know, it's not easy getting an allocation from such a, you know, a hot up and coming company as well. So I had to show a lot of value, you know, I helped them in a lot of different areas. And, you know, I was lucky enough to get a small allocation of their Series A. And they wanted, you know, some more exposure to the US investor market as well. So that's one thing that Angelus is fantastic for. It has a lot of US investors, and we actually listed the deal on AngelList and AngelList have their own internal fund. So this fund looks at every deal before it goes live. And you know we were lucky enough to get a large investment from them as well, which was a great signal. And yeah, it was a really successful syndicate. And now you know, I'm trying to replicate this with other companies in Australia 
that want to scale to the US, that want to get that exposure. And um, yeah, it's fantastic for getting those early stage investors in Australia into these great deals as well. It's kind of a, a circular economy of sorts where uh, everyone wins. Mm. So how many deals have you done at the moment or investments? Uh, so I've done personally 22 angel investments uh, in Australia, US, Mexico, and Colombia. And I mean, across all different areas as well, you know, computer vision, payments, space, the final frontier. Uh, <laughs> it's the... I mean, as I, said, as I said earlier in the interview as well, you know, it's a fantastic way to get, you know, that surface level education across so many different areas. And, you know, it's exciting. You know, each, each morning I wake up excited about, you know, what am I going to learn today? What deal am I going to see today? And, you know, being part of AngelList as well, you get to see deals from all across the world. You know, the latest Y Culminator demo day just happened. Mm-hmm. So Y Culminator or YC is the largest accelerator in the world, you know, companies like Airbnb and Dropbox have come out of there in the early days. You know, they have 150 companies in their cohort now twice a year. So you can imagine how many quality founders and companies are coming through, you know, daily on AngelList. Uh, so it's super exciting space. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I did an investment in, in space as well in, in a satellite company called Akesh through uh, Arlen Hamilton Syndicate. And uh mm. I was learning about satellites for the first time ever and, and different types of space in terms of, you know, near earth objects, middle and distance. And it, it is, it's, it's makes you more interested as an investor too, because normally I'd be interested in space, but now I'm like, okay, how is this company different and special? And, and, you know, you're getting your own education, but you're also as an entrepreneur excited about the potential. I know Brendan is only a, a few more minutes before you go to wrap up for another meeting. I'd love to know, obviously, you know, you, you've kind of had both sides of this experience. You've been an e-commerce entrepreneur. You've had a successful exit. You've turned that money now, or some of it anyway, into uh, various or over 20 angel investments. It's early enough days that you can't say that you know, you've got an Uber in there yet, I'm assuming. But that's the ultimate plan, isn't it? That we're going to hit something of that level. But maybe you've got some other goals as well. Like, what are your personal goals around angel investing? Besides, and I know you're going to answer in one way, you like helping other entrepreneurs. Let's, let's put that answer aside because I know that's the case for you. But what are your other goals? Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to get more people into the area of angel investing. So as I mentioned, we ran a course last year. There are all kinds of people that came to that course. You know, we had ex-founders. We had, you know, investment bankers. We had... You know, all kinds of different people. And I mean, angel investing is such an interesting and young asset class. And there's a lot of barriers that are getting knocked down. So the access is getting easier. You know, it's a great way to get an education and learn about the ecosystem. I think it's great for founders as well. Like even if you're not interested in angel investing, I think it's a great way to, you know, get inside the mind of investors and, you know, see how they think, you know, not Every angel investor is looking for the next Uber. You know, they might have different goals and aspirations. They might be a social impact investor, for example. So, I mean, Jason Calacanis' book, again, Angel, that's got some great chapters that I recommend every founder that I coach and mentor read as well, just to get inside the mindset of the investor. And, you know, how, how do you make your company more investable? Because, you know, the whole fundraising process from the founder side, you know, that can take, I've seen that take up to six months for some people and, you know, it takes them out of their business and definitely affects the growth and things like that. So, yeah, my goal is definitely to get more people interested in angel investing, you know, present them with the best deals. And, you know, I have some goals around, you know, philanthropy as well that I'm still in the early days and, you know, working on at the moment. I had actually worked at UNICEF Australia when I was first out of university in the marketing department. So definitely have an affinity for, you know, social good and change. And yeah, I'm thinking of different ways that, you know, successful angel investors can contribute towards uh, these type of goals as well. Awesome, Brendan. So where can we go? I guess there's so many things now you're doing, but is there a good entry point for getting in touch with you? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn in terms of answering messages. So you can find me at LinkedIn. If you type in Brendan Hill, I'll be the first response. And I'll also drop in a link to my angel list 
Syndicate in the show notes as well. I'll send that to you, Yaro. Awesome. And uh, yeah, any questions that you guys have about you know investing, you know, entrepreneurship, e-commerce startups, I'm more than happy to talk to you. I am curious. This maybe one last question. What with AngelList, since I think I was Utilitaire was your first syndicate there, is the plan to be very regular there? Do you want to be like a, a Jason Calcanis doing a deal a week or a deal a month uh, at some point? Yeah, I, I mean there are there are syndicate leads that you know do do a deal a week and stuff like that. But I want to make sure that you know, I'm only syndicating you know the cream of the crop, the best, absolute best founders that you know. A, I know personally. B, you know they're thinking global from day one. You know they want to take over the world with their product. So I think I'll be you know about one deal a quarter would be my sort of cadence. And yeah, just syndicating the, the best deals that. Australia has to offer. Awesome. Brendan, thanks for sharing both sides of that story, the entrepreneur and the angel investor. I feel like it's perhaps still early days with that angel investing career, but I love that you're also educating and trying to bring more people into it. Me personally, I guess I've been more like two years. I call myself consistently angel investing, although I had one very, very early one a long time ago. I didn't even realize I was angel investing really when I did that one. Um, and I think it's a great space. So anyone listening in, if you're finding this idea interesting, I think the most important point to make, and I know this was a, a breakthrough for me, is that to join a syndicate, it's $1,000 to get started in a lot of these deals. Like you can have a very, very small chunk in one of these startups mm-hmm. that could turn into... A significant return, and we're maybe not a four thousand x return like Uber with Jason. That that is a bit of a one in a you know billion kind of result. But there's no reason why you can get a good result. There's no guarantees, of course. Most companies do fail. I was going to say that, but I think it's exciting to be involved, and I love seeing the behind the scenes info you get too about these companies. I think as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Being an angel investor is actually really insightful. It gives you an idea of what's kind of working for them. And like you said, what industries are taking off and what business models people are using. So I'm sure Brendan will will touch base on new syndicate deals in the future. And yeah, keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks, Yara. Thanks for having me. Hey, this is Yaro, and thanks for being a listener. Now, in this episode, if there was something you think could benefit a friend, a family member, a colleague, maybe an entrepreneur that you know, maybe it was something to do with getting traffic or launching a product or just coming up with an idea, make sure you send this episode to them. It could change the trajectory of their life and I'd really appreciate the introduction to my show. Also, if you're not a subscriber, make sure you click that subscribe button, whether it's in Google or Apple or YouTube or Spotify, and you'll get my episodes as I release them. Thanks again for being a listener. Thanks for listening to Yaro's podcast. For more episodes, visit yaro.blog and subscribe on iTunes or Google.